This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. You're listening to The Sound of London. This is Londonist Out Loud. I'm Anne Quentin Wolfe. And I have for you this week four shows for the price of one. Not only will we be exploring in the company of Look Up London founder Katie Wignall curiosities and back alleys around embankment, but we'll also be serving up a full history of the newspaper trade, exploring some Roman baths of dubious authenticity and finding out a thing or two about underwater photography. And I know how those sound like they should link up, and it doesn't work like that at all. Oh, and we'll be finding out where you can get a cup of tea for a quid, a stone's throw from Temple Tube Station. All you have to do is be ready to look up. Hey, baby, let me take you down to a place of strange sights and sound. You ain't never seen the light before, just a stone's throw from your front door. of Temple Tube Station. It's rush hour, it's just after rush hour. I've been dismayed to find myself with my head in somebody's armpit this morning. Uh, as has Katie Wignall. Not the same armpit, I should Hello, glad to be here. Uh, well, that was very... <laughs> You're not addressing the armpit matter at all, that's quite right. Uh, Katie Wignall of Look Up London. Hi. Is it just what it says on the tip? Pretty much, yeah. So the idea is that you are looking up around in London spotting things that you haven't usually seen before and then by finding out some more information start unravelling bits of history. Now this premise of looking above the eye line this works in supermarkets as well I've discovered and it kind of makes sense the way that supermarkets operate their shelving confirms your suspicion that people don't look up often enough because all the products that they expect to sell and they want you to buy they're all just below your eye line around about chest height because that's where everybody looks and all the stuff that's uh, a little bit more out of the way and that they don't really care if they sell so much of that, that, that'll be right up on the top shelf or tucked down at the bottom. Yeah, that's very true. And I think you can totally see that on London streets. People don't look much above shop level or the signs of shops along the high street. So we're trying to get people to raise their eye line. Right, eyes off your mobile phone and uh, looking upwards. Weather-wise... And this will only concern you, listener, if you care for the safe functioning of this microphone. It's looking like rain, but I think we're going to dodge between the raindrops and see how we go. Yes, hopefully so. So we're starting out from Temple Tube Station. We are making a left, and we are going up these familiar few steps onto Temple Place. Well, Temple Station is actually the go-to starting point for quite a lot of guides because it's central, obviously, and also it has one exit, so it's very easy to as a meeting location. If you're going to lose your customers, you don't want to do it right at the beginning of the tour, do you? 
wait a few minutes for courtesy's sake. Exactly, you've got to give them a chance. <laughs> We've turned left along Temple Place and the day is brooding. There are pregnant, dark skies. Yeah, it's, um, we're hoping for the best, basically. Now, as I look up, I'm seeing ahead of me, on top of one of the four or five-storey elegant Georgian buildings, a acid house smiley face on a big yellow flag flying horizontally in this weather. Yeah, it's, um, it's somewhat brightening up the skyline, I would say. I think that that's there because of... Um, the exhibition at Somerset House. And we can also see... Now, this is interesting. You don't necessarily see this unless you're going out on a mission to look up, but just above one of the doorways just down here, we see an inscription. Yes. It's not as old as it might appear. So it's an I, an I, an S, and an S. And it stands for the International Institute of Strategic Studies. So it's a think tank, basically. But it's in a building that looks a lot older, Arundel House which we will come back to later. Do we know what they're thinking about? I am not sure. Very important strategic things. Yes. <laughs> oh, now this is our first stop. Uh, a green building. And when I say green building, I mean a large shed. Yeah, it's a quaint-looking little building. You'd easily pass it. Um, but there are only a few of them around London. They're somewhat of a rarity. And what they are is cabman shelters. So there's now only 13 left across London, and there used to be 61. And they're basically the original drive-throughs of their day. They were built around 1875, and they serve to give cabbies refreshment and a place to have a hot drink, quick wee stop, and basically then send them on their way. I can't help noticing on the top of it. Well, I, the first thing that caught my eye is the price on the chalkboard outside. Cup of coffee, one pound. Yes, they keep it very affordable for um, cab drivers and apparently the general public too. It looks like a normal shed or at that size maybe a, a summer house at the bottom of your garden. Bright green, as you say, tiled roof. But then at the top there, in the centre, there's what looks either like a bell tower or a dovecote. I think it's probably for ventilation, but it has oh, been... Oh, how boring. I know, I know, sorry about that. But it does look very sweet, and like you said, looks like a um, like a bell tower. Should we go and see what's going on inside? Yes. We're inside the cab shelter, and it's a great place to be, not least because there's a halogen heater here, and I don't intend ever leaving. But there's also an underwater photographer here. What's your name, sir? Terry Arpino. Hi. Yeah. Before we move on to anything to do with the cab shelter, your photography is exquisite. There's a picture up there. This is underwater photography of an enormous redfish, and it's in 3D. It's quite incredible. Well, yeah, I, I got into uh, three-dimensional photography about 10 years ago, and it's over sort of 40, 50 years of, of work <laughs> being under the water with a camera more of a uh, dedicated uh, love for uh, underwater photography than commissions. Commissions did come along and I've always tried to be on the cutting edge of printing and I've done all sorts of printing on aluminium on perspex, glass and so on and then I come to this and this is my final stage of uh, three-dimensional imaging quite rare to see in underwater photography, costly uh, and I put most of all my efforts and um, all my interest into producing these images, which gives the public a, a fair idea of what it's like um, underwater. There's one below it which is yeah. equally yeah. beautiful. This is yes. seen from, uh, I guess, the, the middle of the nets on uh, some sort of fishing well, expedition. Yeah. That, uh, that's an exceptional image. It was a commission shot that was for the Wimbledon Technical Diving Company, and it was shot, believe it or not, in uh, ice cold Stony Cove, which is Stony Staten up in Leicestershire. And we took a crowd of guys up there, and uh, the owner of the company, who was one of the first to get into mixed gases. And the idea of the shot is sort of showing that divers now are going to 100 metres um, on mixed gases and returning back on uh, which we call um, 
ropes and uh, I'll think of the name of it. But uh, I was going to say ropes didn't sound very technical. No, after all, no, I didn't. No, no, it's certainly not. But they make like a, a, a sledge up, uh, a seat. Oh, I've seen one of those. Up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A bit like a swing, if you like. So rather than just hanging in the water, they can sit on a swing, and that's how they do it. It was an awfully cold day when we done that. You know, absolutely freezing to death. But I managed to do the shot. And the figures in the background, I guess the divers who are contributing to the effort there, are like ghosts. There's something not only about the three-dimensionality, but also the murkiness of the water that's concealing them and they move around in it. Sure, because in a lake, the the water's clear, but it's inclined to be quite green. Um, And I think you're probably seeing a few frozen divers in that picture at the end of the day. You know, we was in the water a long time. And uh, if you want to come and see this, then all you have to do is the knowledge, become a cabbie, and uh, get a meal here at one of the... Now, this this is one of very few cab shelters left, isn't it? Yes, I think there's only about 13 left now, and um, they're being refurbished as well. Um, They're for cab drivers and also for the public. You know, they've changed the, the sort of just for the cab trade, as it were. Uh, We do a lot of takeaway food here. Um, And it's for the public to come and see if they wish. Um, But as a member of the public, I couldn't sit at this uh, uh, three-sided bench here and order myself a fry-up. Uh, well, I, I would say yes to that. You're open to offers. Yeah, we're open to offers. You know, if someone wants to come in and sit down and have a chat and have a bacon sandwich or whatever. Yeah, why not? Yeah, I don't mind them coming in. You know, this sounds like a massively useful resource. How come the numbers have been dwindling? Well, firstly, um, it was probably they was taken away like most things. You know that oh, it's in the way there. There was one on Hyde Park corner. Uh, let's get rid of that because we're doing an underpass and no really one really took notice of the historical part of the uh, cab trade but now of course they have and these are not you know they're listed buildings mm. which sort of comes under the crown so they're historical and they can't they can be moved but they can't be pulled down and they can be uh, restored which this one will eventually be restored because I could be moving across the road and the reason being is because they're building this bridge and, and park across the Thames. The so bridge. if you want to go the garden bridge, so if you want to go and look at the roses and uh, the tulips when they come up, the garden bridge is ideal, I suppose. So this is going to be a good thing for you. That's a nice view out of your window. Well, I won't be here. They're moving us just across the road. You'll be able to see from over there, won't you? So uh, hopefully, uh, with a te- <laughs> telephoto lens, I might be able to see it. You know? <laughs> oh, yes, you're going to be photographing the whole lot as well. <laughs> yeah, I will do, yeah. Have you ever done uh, photography in the Thames? <laughs> Is that even possible? <laughs> well, I have done, yes, but it, um, it, it don't turn out too well, to be honest with you. I have tried it. Uh, because when you kick off, you're, you know, you go in a pond to try and take pictures, you know. Underwater photography has gone a long, long way. Um, and now it's very acceptable in the media. Before it wasn't, years ago. I'm going back a few years ago now. But now uh, everyone wants to get in, involved in underwater photography, especially what you can do. I've done fashion. I've done nudes, you know. Um, well, uh, that fish has got nothing on. No, no. <laughs> That's not wearing anything. No, no, and it's a female as well. <laughs> How on earth do you know that's a female? I really don't. <laughs> <laughs> are, are there any questions that you often get asked uh, on your... Katie's a tour guide. Um, do, you, do you get questions asked a lot about the cab shelters that we could get answered right now? Well, I think the most frequent one is they see the price of a tea and coffee and think, can I, can I get a piece of that? So I'll be able to tell them now, yes, use your, use your cab shelters. Yeah, that's right. Well, what prices are out there? They're out there for everybody. We keep it reasonable as best as we can uh, to encourage the public to come to us. And uh, obviously it helps the cab trade out a bit now because they're suffering, obviously. As everybody knows, through uh, the Uber circuits and the cars so the cab trade is not having it as easy as they did like most trades there's changes and the cab trade is no exception to that you know so uh, we try and uh, keep the prices reasonable so we can keep them drinking and eating you know well we're gonna we're gonna head off i think thanks for having us here pleasure okay before you go would you like a cup of tea or coffee you have a cup <laughs> yeah. of coffee thank With you coffees, yeah. wow. okay on Surrey Street now. 
and uh, a glance up at the architecture here. Well, architecturally, there's actually a huge amount going on. The most obvious thing is what we, I guess, would have to presume has something to do with clearances for the Garden Bridge project. Uh, as I look up Surrey Street, on the left and in front of me, some very ornate and well-decorated buildings the colonnades of a Georgian style building with its green roof uh, on the street crossing ahead of us on the right though oh no it's a brutalist 60s horror show and it gets worse because midway down the building as it comes down the hill it abruptly terminates in destruction the half of the building has been demolished it would seem leaving a big empty area that's boarded all around it's not a very lovely spot no, I appreciate you're not a fan of the Brutalist architecture. I'm not a fan of Brutalist. No, I think there is something in it. Uh, I'm a, I'm a, I like seeing the differences. You're looking at this. Okay, imagine a layer cake made out of concrete slabs, filthy dirty and half demolished. What are you seeing in this? This isn't the best example of Brutalist <laughs> architecture. I'll give you that one. But I think... By maybe comparing this to the lovely building on the right, it makes the other one more beautiful. What about that, Jackson? I, I like what you've done there. <laughs> so we should admire it for being the unattractive best friend. The wingman. The wingman, yes. <laughs> That's a great image. <laughs> I now feel slightly sorry for the bridge of this building. <laughs> yeah, it always gets a hard deal. It's unfair. Up Surrey Street further, Greek masks... This, trip, this looking up business is a good game. Yeah, um, so this building is Norfolk, um, Norfolk House, I think, or maybe Norfolk Hotel House. It's now owned by King's College London, but they have kept this really decorative facade outside. So it's now um, just used for lecture halls and things like that. Well, it seems inevitable in this area that my tour guide is going to take me down a preposterously dangerous-looking alley. This one has been gated with the sort of gates that you use to keep dogs in. Yeah, it's um, it's closed around uh, dusk time, So, but now, thankfully, it's open to us now. And it's white-tiled, and the other place that this reminds me of straight away is around the back of the Old Bailey, where people went to be hanged. Well, hopefully, Thank you for bringing me here. Uh, hopefully that's not going to happen today. What do you mean, hopefully? I can't make any promises. <laughs> Down a flight of steps and into... Oh, this is fascinating. We're on a quite a wide side alley. I guess it's uh, 10, 12 feet across Strand Lane. Down at the end there, we can see the traffic of embankment moving across the end of the alleyway. But it's the covered walkways, three or four floors up, that really fascinate me here. So that's full of the uh, King's College students, obviously, visiting around. But it does rather look like an M.C. Escher sketch. It totally does, and they're enclosed. They've got concrete bases and probably a bit of RSJ in there. But the sides are all glass, so you get the impression that they're out in the open. And we're going to move up the hill. Yeah, we're taking right and heading to a sign uh, which says the National Trust Roman Baths. This isn't what you'd expect to find up this unassuming is understating it alleyway and we've come to a white door here let's see what's going on inside we are in a pretty rundown looking place it's very very old we can see some tile broken tile uh, decoration around the door frame just there Everything's made out of uh, stone, I guess. Um, slabs. There's a very old uh, uh, slate tile floor, perhaps. A little bit more decoration, decorative tiles here. These look a, bit, a little bit more modern. Maybe they refer to the Georgian period or something, but I, I've no idea what time they were put in there. And it smells musty as hell. Yeah, I was going to say it's the the shame that um, the listeners can't can't get that smell because I think that's what first hit you, kind of almost like a dirty swimming pool kind of a smell. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Well, I'm I'm asserting that that is absolutely correct, but I don't think I've ever smelled a dirty swimming pool. <laughs> this is how I imagine it would ah, smell, I, I guess. So where we're in just now, and it might get a bit echoey if we walk inside here. Yeah, we're passing through a door frame and into a 
chamber and I want you to imagine a bathtub that's about as big as one of those uh, rib boats that you see going up the Thames. It's about the same size and shape there. You could probably seat 10, 12 people in it comfortably, but it's half full of water. I guess it goes, I guess it goes down into the ground about uh, four feet and it's half full of water. And there's a guardrail stopping us from tumbling in. So what we're looking at where we're standing now is, is so-called the Roman bath of Strand Lane. In fact, it's uh, not Roman at all. Well, I'm leaving. It is, sorry to uh, lure you here under false pretenses. It's not Roman at all. It was discovered during the Victorian times. And when they found it, people really wanted to believe that it was a legitimate Roman bath. Lots of contemporary writers were clamouring to explain that they'd discovered real, authentic Roman ruins. People are still not sure of exactly why it's here, but historians have dated it to the 17th century rather than the Roman period. The Victorians can be forgiven, though, because... It was meant to look like a Roman bath. So the person that put it here obviously knew a lot about antiquity and had decorated it a lot better than we're seeing it now, maybe um, accompanied by Roman sculpture and artwork and in the same style. So the most probable reason for it being here is that it was connected to Arundel House, which we saw earlier by Temple Station. So it's thought that this is a natural spring-fed bath that was either a kind of pleasure bath or a sort of water supply for that grand country house on the, on the strand. What do we know about Arundel House? So it was owned by uh, Thomas Howard, who was the second Earl of Arundel, and it's um, he who was believed to have put together this bath he was a great collector of Roman sculpture and artworks and that philanthropy is what we guess is the reason for this um, discovery here so there's a, a lot of supposition so I could ask you whether this would have been something that the general population would have been allowed access to at the right price or whether this was a private concern uh, how private was it merely decorative I think it was private. Um, It definitely wasn't a public bath, but again, there's some um, debate over over that um, and generally what it's used for. Some people think that it was actually part of Somerset House and was built in 1612, I think, by King James at the time. So there, there are all these differing theories of what it was connected to. Obviously now, with everything, all the buildings changing around it, it's a bit on its own, so it's hard to connect it to the buildings that are around it. Where do you get these theories from when you say people think that? Who thinks that? Uh, well, there's some information on the National Trust uh, website, but they, they've still got a sign up saying Roman Bath, so <laughs> I'm not sure whether we can um, look, look to them. But um, several different theories being bandied about um, online. As yet, I don't know if there's ever been a, a fully published study, but that might be completely my ignorance on it. Please do share if there is someone who has written about it. It's very modest, really, and I'm sure there are... One, obviously, springs to mind immediately more lavish and complex examples of, of, uh, of Roman baths or things that are trying to look like Roman baths. Do you think this is the sort of thing that's worth finding out more about in terms of uh, expenditure of resources on it or is it the sort of thing that might be left to people speculating and digging around off their own bat? I mean that's kind of a really hard question because it, it, you could ask that about lots of things that people spend their time um, and dedicated study on. I think certainly when I first stumbled across it I was really excited to find this kind of hidden gem even though gem is maybe a strong word it's um, a bit dilapidated and sorry for itself to say the least but um, definitely gives you this idea of the layers of history under London and I think people would always be interested in finding more about that. I was just looking through some of the information provided here oh there's been an expiration in the baths 
Uh, yeah, there's a, a photo of a very luxuriously clad gentleman, uh, William Weddell, Esquire, an MP for Moulton in Yorkshire, uh, who apparently expired in the bath in May 1792. Um, he looks very grand in the picture. Yes, I don't suppose he looked as grand in the bath. So it seems that uh, someone who has done a lot of research on this is a Michael Trapp from King's College London, and there's some information uh, from his work published on the side of the walls which seem to support the Somerset House, James I theory of the bath um, being a sort of feeder system rather than um, an actual bathhouse, but a very elaborate one. Um, we see an engraving here from 1841 of the bath, looking almost exactly identical to what we've just seen. Very little difference at all. Yeah, there's some also um, photos of a reconstruction from 1900, <laughs> which doesn't really look that much better, I've got to be honest. There's a sort of more romantic interpretation from 1922. I don't think that ever took shape. Well, though. OK, so the... Uh, <laughs> These, these two pictures are... Uh, this is like one of those adverts that you see on the tube of a before and after that is entirely implausible. The after is uh, there are lily pads floating around, there are maidens in togas relaxing at the poolside, having intellectual conversations with each other, wreathed in laurels. Uh, it's a scene of opulence. The photograph of the bath in 1900, just a few years before, I think you'd walk in and uh, you'd emit a monk-style scream and run back out again. Yeah, I'd agree with that um, interpretation. Shall we we, uh, do a scream and uh, run out of here ourselves? Yes, let's get to the fresh air. Well, we are outside the Roman baths now. That's absolutely fascinating. And we've paused, really, up here on the wall at about... uh, Well, I was going to guess how far up the wall it is, but it actually says how far up the wall it is. That is actually a measurement towards the east rather than the... um, the height oh, of I see. it is. Well, it is about seven feet, eight and a half inches off the ground, I would say. Yeah, funny coincidence. Um, but what I should describe it, so we've, we've got those details in very large font, and they've been chiselled into the wall. I guess the letters are about an inch and a half, two inches tall. And then above that, there's an embossed black shield. It says SMLS, and there are a couple of fleur-de-lis and a sword of some sort. So this is a church boundary marker and the initials that you've pointed out stand for St Mary Le Strand which is just further up on Strand. What it's telling us is that the area which is owned by the church goes up to this point but seven foot eight and a half inches to the east. (laughs) And if we look that distance to the east we see nothing at all. No. There's no particular reason why that would be the line of demarcation. What happens? What, are we being irreligious now? Or, or do we belong to a different church? Or what's going on? Well, if you look behind you, there's actually another church boundary up to your left. Oh, this one's got an anchor. This has, yes, indeed, an anchor and is surrounded. S- SCD. That's got to be St. Clement Danes. Very good. Yes, it is indeed. And another clue is that St. Clement was martyred by being thrown into the sea attached to an anchor, so that's why that anchor sign is there. It often strikes me that with Christian figures, if they were to come back, the last thing they'd want to see is the sign that now represents them. Yeah, it's a bit unfortunate, especially because they were very um, eclectic ways of, of killing people. Well, we're going up Surrey Steps once more, and our destination is where? We're heading up towards that lovely building, the Australia House, but then we're going to take a right heading towards Fleet Street. Now tell me about Look Up London, because I I know this is a relatively new venture for you. Yeah, so um, I've started working on Look Up London full-time in November, so three, four months ago, but I had been running the blog and Twitter account for about three years. And what was the aim initially then? Why did you start doing it? Because you were working in marketing, I think. Yes, I was working in marketing before. I started Look Up London when... 
This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right. Over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also, small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to LinkedIn.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. And I'd come back to London after university, so I kind of had this revival of enthusiasm for London and wanted to share that because I thought it was it was bizarre that no one else was looking up at these amazing features and appreciating them. You, you say amazing, uh, gesturing towards the uh, brutalist building once again. Well... I'm sure you mean the uh, one on the left. A better example would be the one on the left that we've just passed here. So you may recognise the oxblood tiles, which are quite characteristic of old tube stations. And indeed, that's what we're looking at here. Polished to within an inch of their life. Yeah, also the Piccadilly Railway gives it away slightly that it is a... Um, X tube station. This is Aldrich tube? Yeah. Now, is this the one that's used for a lot of filming? Yeah, um, so inside they still have quite a lot of the period features and old advertisements and things like that. So it is used a lot. Atonement is one example, I believe. So we can expect to see the same adverts in a, a lot of tube stations in a lot of period films? Probably, yes. Right, I should be keeping my eyes peeled for that. Um, when it opened, it was actually called Strand Station, and then it was changed to Aldwych Station about ten years afterwards. Oh, that's interesting, because there's nothing more fascinating, uh, to my mind, than looking at the old tube maps and trying to plot out which things used to belong to which other things, and which stations have disappeared or merely been renamed. Exactly. There's quite a few um, sort of lost stations um, and they are pretty interesting and just great spaces, really centrally located. So on the left, if we come to the Strand, you can see that it says Strand Station across the front, even though it's um, known as Aldwych Station. So that was kind of the original frontage from 1907, I think. Well, as we head east, we're going to take a short break. We'll be back in just a moment. And uh, by the way, if you're enjoying this show or indeed any other, tell the world about it. Why don't you? We would love you to get onto iTunes and leave a review explaining just exactly why we're wonderful. That seems reasonable, doesn't it? Totally. The Sound of London. Londonist Out Loud with N. Quentin Wolfe. Listen free every week on your favourite podcast platform. Subscribe via iTunes and get great extra content at Londonist.com. Tweet the show at Londonist Sound and see pictures of all our guests on the Londonist Out Loud stream on Instagram. 
it's quite hard to see up um, to your left, but as we pass St. Clement Dane, you can see the same symbol that we saw before, just above the, the sundial on the left-hand side of the anchor. And, uh, ah, yes. Yeah, there it is, in, in gold leaf. Now I know you're telling the truth. <laughs> That's always good to know. So how many of these boundary markers are there in town? Because there are an awful lot of churches and, and there have been even more. I imagine there's thousands of these markers if they've been kind of left and not uh, sort of ripped off or, or demolished because um, there are rather a lot of churches in London. Yeah, do you know, you know what I'm going to ask you, don't you? I don't know how many churches there are in London. <laughs> I'm fairly certain that there must be, in a seasoned tour guide, you know, somebody who's been doing it 20, 30 years, there must be a background hum of information of that sort that they probably have reason to recall, you know, maybe once every three or four years. In a pub quiz, maybe. Yeah, exactly right. How does it feel, by the way, to be starting out in this game? I, I would feel daunted. I think it is, um, it is quite intimidating, or, or can be. I think um, what I aim to give people and it's mainly Londoners who've lived here for quite a long time coming on on my tours just to give them a fresh look at the city a new appreciation of what they're missing out on and hopefully kind of inspiring them to then look up a bit more be a bit more curious and discover things for themselves ahead of us in the center of the street we see the city of London dragon always an unusual choice I thought as the emblem of a city considering it's pretty much represented throughout English history as a greedy, tyrannical creature that steals money and kills innocent people. Yes, I find it very strange that they would choose that symbol. That's right, when we think of Beowulf, there's a dragon at the end of that, I think he's sitting on his hoard of gold. Yeah, or indeed Smaug, that's who comes to mind. So this is a... um, that has caught my eye quite recently. Well, we've we've stopped outside. Is that stained glass? What an incredible frontage that is! This is a uh, this is Thai Square restaurant. We're opposite the Royal Courts of Justice, and there is the most beautiful stained glass window. But I should think from inside that would be quite something. But we're outside the front door, and above us is a gold plaque which says. Built in 1625, the only strand building to survive the Great Fire of London. I always think we need to be quite wary when we see these uh, signs around, but um, it's, it's definitely something to, to bear in mind as we're walking along Strand and Fleet Street. Well, if there's even a scintilla of truth in that, then that would suggest that this was the some way representative of the general look of the area. And so what a street that must have been. Yeah, definitely. Um, What you can see is this um, overhang on the top of the buildings because I think it's to do with the amount of tax that you had to pay for the ground plan of the building, but then you could build up and out so you could kind of effectively gain more space without paying any more money. On the old London Bridge, the buildings were pretty much touching each other across the street, weren't they? Yeah, well, indeed, along the Strand and Fleet Street as well, there are some anecdotes of people being able to reach out and sort of shake hands from houses across the street. Well, that sounds implausible, uh, unless this street has been widened at some point. And this is quite a distance, isn't it? Well, the Royal Courts of Justice were made 1840s. Perhaps when they were built, it was set back a little bit, but I'm not sure, to be honest one of those days there's just a nice bite in the air so you get the virtuous feeling of uh, being up in the morning and out and about not too many people about it's just after the rush hours calmed down yes and and before the lunchtime rush which is quite good so this must be a good uh, tour time of day yeah well actually i i usually start my fleet street uh, walks either at midday or 11 o'clock on sundays why why in the name of all that's holy would you start a tour in the middle of the lunch rush I think you get a nice, fuzzy feeling. It's not too bad. I've led groups down here before and we haven't been accosted or pushed out of the way so far. Also, I think um, maybe it's a nice thing if you have a particularly lenient boss to come and do on your lunch hour. Oh, now I see what you're thinking. Yes, (laughs) absolutely right. I'm recognising one or two of the locations that we've recorded at before. And it seems that you're going to be showing us a bank 
as well, but not the uh, not the Lloyds Bank just along the street here. No, although the interior on that is beautiful, I encourage you to duck your head inside if you're ever passing it. But what we're talking about is Gosling's Bank. There is a little sign. Um, if you look up where the current Barclays is, and you'll see three squirrels. I see. Okay, so this is one of those iron attachments to the outside of the building uh, that quite a few of the shops here have in the same sort of style as a community clock but this one's a an oval sign and embossed on it oh very clearly are three squirrels uh, eating their nuts and what this was a sign of a bank yeah so goslings was a family run bank it was actually mentioned in uh, samuel peaks's diary so he said there was a goldsmith called Henry Pinkney under the Three Squirrels on Fleet Street. Um, so we know that it probably was founded in the 17th century and some things suggest it was founded in 1650. And I've got to say, I mean, who cares really? But as soon as you stack this up against Lloyd's Bank's horse or Barclays Bank, uh, what is that a griffin or an eagle or it's, a, it's one of those things a bird of another another taloned beaked creature fearsome looking Fe- fearsome not only are the squirrels friendly but they do actually have a relevance to the idea of, of storing something away and getting it back out later exactly I always think they're a better representative for a bank an idea of sort of squirrelling away your your money some may find it surprising that it isn't a picture of goslings well, quite so, yes. but it was actually um, a different spelling of the name from the person who was originally a partner in the company where I think it got its name from so it was Goslin with L-Y-N um, I think it was a Mr Francis so they went, they went to the trouble of changing the name and then not showing pictures of goslings no they obviously agreed with us that squirrels were the best well, they should have changed it to squirrels bank shouldn't they Oh, they should have, but maybe Mr. Francis was just too too preoccupied. Do you think it was a negotiation? With squirrels almost like Goslin on the other. Possibly. Goslings is where they met. There's also some more squirrels if you look up on the actual building of Barclays Bank behind you, which are rather sweet as well. The reason that they're here and this bark, uh, building is a Barclays is because in 1790s, I think Barclays uh, bought up a lot of family-run banks and uh, 20 in, in one year, in fact. So Gosling's is, was now part of Barclays Bank. I had no idea that Barclays Bank had been going on that long. Yeah, it is a very um, old company. Oh, there's a plaque there. Ah, Barclays Bank, PLC, Gosling's, established 1650. And a few people have said that if you went into that branch of Barclays Bank, they still have customer records from Gosling's customers going back to 1717. As we move up the street, we're now in the city of London. To our left, there is a building that on its signs, which look kind of 1910E as far as I'm concerned. And they say things like Dundee Evening Telegraph, Sunday Post People's Friend, Dundee Courier. It's almost as though this street had, uh, at one point, a strong connection with the print trade. Funny you should mention that, because that probably is the thing that people associate with uh, Fleet Street. And indeed, here we really see the beginning of that association. And as you walk down, you'll see lots of buildings which still have names of newspapers on them. So DC Thompson, which still... Um, is on this spot is possibly most famous for printing the Beano and if you walk past the shop window you can see uh, lots of the cartoons and, and figures inside you know for some reason I thought it was published in Glasgow I think it may have been originally published in Glasgow but they're sort of paying homage to their product now we've stopped opposite a church yeah, what we're looking at is St Dunstan in the west, a particularly dominant-looking church with a castle-like top instead of a steeple. Uh, what I wanted to point out was two very striking figures who are standing proudly... <laughs> was that a deliberate pun? On <laughs> No, oh, I wish I had now. Uh, so they're striking in more ways than one because they are bearing clubs which chime in the bells every quarter of an hour, I think. Well, they're not wearing enough, especially on a day like this. No, but they are sporting a particularly fetching golden loincloth. 
and uh, one fellow has got his vast club in his hand and he's ready to uh, smite the bell at the quarter hour and you know what we've got six minutes to wait until the quarter of an hour comes and I can't be bothered <laughs> well um, at least I can I can tell you that these figures are Bog and Magog oh okay so they were mentioned in the Bible they're kind of ancient pagan symbols um, there are some references to them being the last kings of the giants if you believe in these uh, mythological things they were seen as sort of guardians of ancient London. You say there are pagan figures, but mentioned in the Bible. Why would the Bible be mentioning them? Apart from to say, don't, don't do that. Well, I think they were perhaps pagan ideas that were taken by Christianity or older than that. What do you mean? So, Gog and Magog are mentioned in the Bible. They have apparently came over from sort of holy lands and are seen as the guardians of London. Indeed, they're still um, used in the Lord Mayor's parade in September and carried as effigies down the street. In what way are they protecting us? I think maybe they were just very large, strong creatures that maybe some of the original inhabitants of London apparently befriended so they wouldn't destroy destroy the city. So a bit of a protection racket, really, then? Pretty much. The other thing I wanted to point out was the clock, which is sort of protruding off the building. And it was the first public clock in London to have a minute hand. So it was put there in 1761, I believe. And before then... It didn't really matter if um, clocks were particularly accurate because it was only with the invention of the railways in 1830 that um, everything had to run strictly on time. So um, you would have just had the hour hand um, going around before that, but this was the first clock to install a minute hand. Well, I'm going to challenge what you're saying there because uh, I've no doubt that the prospect of missing a train, that is important, you do need to be in the right place at the right time, but are we seriously suggesting that up until 1761, if you were going to meet somebody, for example, you'd just say, I'll meet you round about 7 o'clock, and you'd just be kind of hanging around for 20 minutes? Think of the man hours wasted. That is what I'm suggesting. You are That's suggesting? That's what I think that that, um, that is what, what happened. Maybe you'd go for a very simple time, like noon, so the hand is directly up, and then everyone could be in agreement. I suppose you would have to, yeah. And of course, if you're using public clocks, because people wouldn't have timepieces in their pockets at this point, and you're relying on all the public clocks conforming to the correct time, well, we know that doesn't happen. No, that definitely doesn't happen. So you'd have to agree a clock. Yeah, so it must have been an absolute nightmare. Well, we are facing a fetter lane. Which way are we going? Uh, continuing oh, eastwards. Did you not just press the button on that trip, on that... I thought about crossing over, <laughs> and then I thought we can very much are stay... Are trying on to the... shake me off, are we? At that stage of the tour. <laughs> this is how she does it. Well, we're going to talk about um, this shop on our right now, El Vino. Um, we can look at it from this side of the street or the other side of the street. Well, we're here. <laughs> let's do it. And it's a wine merchant's with a very glamorous gold sign on black. Yes, it was founded in 1879. That was the branch that was in the city of London, and this one was opened shortly afterwards. It was basically the post-work drink of choice for um, all of the clerks, lawyers and journalists that were busying around on the Fleet Street area. But I wanted to mention specifically that um, this was the focus of a struggle for women's rights. Um, this bar was always known for being a little bit old-fashioned, some might say backwards, and it was only in 1982 that women were allowed to be served at the bar. You are kidding. No, I am not kidding at all. So it was down to the work of two impressive ladies, Tess Gill and Anna Coote, who were a lawyer and a journalist, respectively, working in this area. And they were finding it detrimental to their careers because 
everyone was able to gossip at the bar, the journalists could talk to judges and lawyers, and the women were hauled back in this um, sort of back room, not allowed... Oh, they were allowed across the, they were the threshold, allowed, that's very generous of them. They were allowed in, but not able to stand at the bar, which is where all the gossip was taking place. So the case was heard at the Royal Courts of Justice, just up the road, and... Were they, were they allowed to be in the main courtroom, or did they have to go to a small courtroom at the back? I think at this point they were oh, allowed. that's very nice. So when it was announced that the motion had, had passed and that uh, Tess Gill and Anna Coote had won, the cries went up in Fleet Street. Everyone was actually very happy with the news, possibly because the men no longer had to buy all their drinks at the bar. But that's just me speculating. Well, a, I've got to say, that's a very cynical view. <laughs> not at all, not at all. I'm sure everyone was was very happy. And uh, the barman who was working at the time said, there's more women at the bar than men. It's absolute chaos in here. Oh, no. I know. I'm genuinely shocked. I'm not often genuinely shocked. 1982? Yeah. Well, I'm glad they've got their axe sorted out. Well done, them, on joining the 20th century just in time for the 21st century to arrive. Uh, well, we're turning off... Fleet Street now, we're going down Bouverie Street, which is a cycle rack, among other things. Always taking you to the most glamorous places. Yeah, we're not going down another alley, are we? I think we might oh. be. <laughs> it's a little brighter than the others that we've that we've gone down, so yeah, don't worry. I think I've reached the trough of my alleyway experience. Oh, just here there's a plaque at shoulder height, or slightly above head height in the case of my guest. And it says, in a house on this site lived William Hazlitt uh, in 1829. I was wondering when you were going to bring up this uh, this height difference um, of ours at the moment. You know, people have been sniggering at us. <laughs> all the time, all the time, yeah. Lovely. <laughs> uh, where are you taking us? So we're heading down Bavery Street and we're going to take a left into Magpie Alley. These streets that lead down to Embankment have a very particular feel don't they when you can see the river at the end there yeah i think um a lot of the time everyone expects london to be very flat so it's when you're walking along streets like this you realize just how um unlevel it is mm. uh, there we can see e magpie alley across the street from us mm. here we go this reminds me a little bit of what's going on in some of the underpasses around the uh, around charing cross station i think we see historic panels in the wall here you also see it on the south bank of the thames in the foot tunnels there. The first image among many, there must be 50 or so here with bits of text built into the tiles of Magpie Alley, is a picture of Caxton showing the first specimen of his printing to King Edward Fourth at the Almondry. Where's the Almondry? No idea. No, no idea. Well, I'm sure it's lovely there. It sounds lovely. Um, so what we're looking at is a, a great gift for tour guides like myself, it lays out pretty much the whole history of printing oh, so on you could Fleet just, you could, Street. So you just bring your... People here and just let them have a look. <laughs> just read that for me and come back into it. <laughs> no, not really. But it is very useful to show um, images to your tour guide groups. So we're starting um, at the beginning with Winkin de Word. Is that really his name? That was really his name. Um, maybe he changed it afterwards. It just seems too good to be to be true, but I'd like to think that that was truly his name. So um, it was uh, Winkin that uh, came here setting up a uh, printing press um, that really started the uh, flood of printers coming to the Fleet Street areas. But um, Why? Why should that be the case? Well, it was actually only in, I think, the 1800s that printing was legalised anywhere else in the UK, or at least England. So it makes sense that Fleet Street had this monopoly because they were only allowed to print in that area. What could be more profoundly strange to the modern mind than printing being illegal? It's so bizarre to consider that now, but people in the establishment and royalty were really very scared of this um, ability to print free speech. Look Up London really started on on Twitter. Of course, yes, you're a tweet-oriented thing. Always had a... um, Always liked that that way of sharing information. We have the printing house in 1608. Looks like a woodcut. So we move kind of seamlessly through woodcuts to then more um, 
mechanised printing presses and then through all the way down to the 1980s. But there are some beautiful old photographs of what Fleet Street looked like mm. um, from 1880 and also 1890. Um, there's a great example of what the Daily Telegraph building looked like before its current form. Do you know, I've, I've almost stopped thinking of newspapers as having any physical presence. Isn't that strange? I know what you mean. With, um, with them moving out of the city and with so much of them now being online, you forget how much space it, it must take up to actually print um, these papers. Yeah, quite so. And I, I find myself thinking in terms of uh, brand rather than physical object, I guess. So here we go. We've got the inauguration of the new offices of the Daily Telegraph in 1882 publication of the Times newspaper outside the office in 1858 which by the way includes um, a number of horses and drays being loaded with uh, what I presume are bagged multiple copies of their product yeah you can there's a nice touch still on Fleet Street if you go to the old Daily Express um, building, you can see an overhang of the building, which shows you that's where the lorries used to pull up and and unload unload papers. Newspaper sellers in 1918, and these are uh, guys probably in their late teens, early twenties, possibly. Um, all of them wearing flat caps. All of them wearing bow ties. Yeah, and with very interesting front page, uh, burglars with dynamite in in Hoban from 1918. And what what is this one? There's another one here that says something talk to women. Well, maybe it just says talk to women. Not about Elvino. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe the top, because it's folded over, maybe the top bit is Elvino yet again refuses to. (laughs) That's probably what it is, yeah. Having no evidence of this, but that's let's let's say it's that. Northcliffe House in 1986. Oh, we've skipped a a big chunk of uh, 20th century there. And, yeah, these printing presses are beasts of things. You wouldn't want to get your finger caught in one of those. No, not at all. Um, So, obviously, the the printing press, um, they all moved out following Rupert Murdoch's move to, to Wapping, although there might be some signs of them coming back in with the news building just in London Bridge by the Shard um, so I think the sun has moved back there so maybe we'll see a, a resurgence of newspapers coming back into central London mm. Does that matter? Not particularly Some, some would say though, with the BBC moving up to Salford some would say uh, get them out of London Yeah, I think um, a lot of people might think it's better if they're sort of equally spread along the country mm. Well we've come to the end of the story of printing which seems appropriate uh, on Fleet Street but I think we've also come to the end of our tour. We have. Now, people may be inspired to look up, and they may be inspired to look up in your company. How would they go about getting hold of your company? Uh, So my website is lookup.london, and you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram on look underscore up London. What do you post on Instagram, by the way? Pictures. Really? (laughs) Shockingly enough. uh, Pictures of... um, hidden things that you may not have noticed before um, and information about them. I'm going to rush off and sign up for that Instagram feed immediately. Katie Wigman, thanks very much. Thank you very much for having me. That's all for this week. My thanks for this week to Katie Wignall. Thanks to to Mark Barr and Bernie Barkley. Theme and incidental music was by Sons from the Howling Sea. I'm Anne Quentin Wolfe.
Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.